Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Mister, what's a correction? What was volatility like? Can you lose money in stocks and bonds? No way. Hey, look, markets have had yet another gangbuster year. Every asset is seemingly doing well. This bull run's going fine, and the Federal Reserve is in no mood to hike us out of this. What gives? We talked to some of my very favorite investors about this era of blissful complacency. Can we <clears throat> keep on running? See what I just did there? Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of our friends at Elwood Thompson's, my very favorite market at the top of Carytown in my hometown, Richmond, Virginia. I got to tell you, the breakfast rocks. They got this reversed ionized, osmosized water that's just delicious. They have a new uh, juice machine, which I've tried the peach iced tea, which is exquisite, especially when you pair it with the vegan biscuits in the morning. I'm there all the time. They kind of call me the mayor of Elwoods, or I don't know if I'm a resident and scholar or just a guy that likes to schmooze, but you need to visit them and definitely try Indian Wednesdays at the top of Carytown, Elwood and Thompson Streets, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us in studio, Dalal Solomon and Dan Ludwin, co-founders of Solomon Ludwin, an investment house with a billion dollars under management. Compare that with the $300 million they started off with in the teeth of the Great Recession back in 2009, was it? Yes, 2009. Welcome. How are you? Hi. Hi, Robin. I'm so glad to have you here. And let me tell you something, by way of full disclosure, these are not press-seeking people. Dalal and Dan get plaudits in Barron's, on Forbes, one of the best investment advisories in the country. They do not seek press. I horse-collar them to come on my show because I like what they do. I like the fact that they remember what risk aversion means, that they are rules-based investors, that they don't get um, freaked out or, or um, euphoric in either direction. I think it's a great time to check their temperature. So I'm curious— in that we invoked 2009. Does anybody remember the lessons of 2009? I mean, I was there in March 2009. Banks were failing. We thought that the government was going to pull the plug on City. Stocks were in nominal terms back at 1996 levels, and they hadn't returned anything compared to bonds in 30 years. In, in hindsight, in perfect 2020 hindsight, it was a once-in-a-lifetime buying opportunity generationally. But now, I mean, risk has been on for most of, what, the seven years since 2011. Absolutely. And when you ask the question, do people remember it? I think investor memories are super short. We remember it as advisors because we had to sit across the table from so many families that were devastated by it. So um, we're very aware of it and we're very concerned about the next bubble and the effect that that might have on uh, the the lives and, and the wealth of the families that we work with. Now, you know, I'm a contrarian. Or I ha- I'm, I'm a person mm-hmm. given to contraindicators. We were talking before the show. I just remember at that point, I was at Business Week in March of 2009, and people just kept tapping on my you know, cubicle window and saying, man, we're going to be eating cat food. You're young, son. You haven't lived through the Depression. I was like, well, neither of you. But, oh, I have stories from my grandma who lived through the Depression. When people do that, when you start to get phone calls from, you know, my cousin in L.A. who never calls me, who was at the Wells Fargo or some other uh, brokerage, who's like, I'm just going to, you know, she was at her brokerage and she was going to liquidate her entire account. That's supposed to tell you to do the opposite. Um, 
I haven't seen any sort of impulse like that uh, for the longest time. I mean, we did have the huge correction in 2011. Europe was going to take us down. Uh, but this has been, uh, you know, I wonder if there's a crying wolf element. Every year it starts with them saying, oh, this is it. We're going to have the big one. The bubble's going to pop. And yet, you know, what are we close to 20% up this year for the S&P? We are. It's uh, it's hard to believe. And I do believe that the, the machine seems to continue um, yeah, I think that the, the lack of volatility over the last couple of years, probably two and a half years, uh, has people thinking the the age old adage buy on dips, but there really even haven't been any dips over the last couple of years. Um, but I think, like you, the contrarian approach to things is, you know, when it's when it's beautiful outside, you got to start preparing for the the weather to change, and that's kind of a tried and true perspective, and that's something that we always try to work on. So this veers into Wonkistan a bit, but when I look at my beautiful, beautiful index-heavy portfolio, I actually love you know logging in these days, whereas I used to try to avoid it. Right. Um, and that's another indicator. I'm thinking if I do want to take cash out of the table or if I want to say maybe don't reinvest the dividends, there are no great options in cash right now. And this has been because the Fed has had its thumb on the scale for the longest time. Normally in an environment like this where you see full employment, where you see inflation subdued, uh, gangbuster asset markets, the Fed has to take up rates to compete uh, for capital, right? You, you know, you don't want crowding out to happen and whatnot. But I see so many investors and so many property owners and asset class owners that are afraid of cash. Like if I sell something, what am I going to do? Yeah, I think, I, I think monetary policy has had a huge effect on putting so much pressure on equities to perform because there's no other, there's no other place to put your money. But that's going to change very quickly once the market has any kind of correction. All of a sudden, earning half a point on cash is a lot better than losing 15, 20, or 30 percent of your portfolio value. The old adage that they say return of capital versus return yeah, exactly. on capital. Exactly. And, and if you look at just um, the, the last couple years of the great bull market of the, of the technology market in the 1990s, the markets went up a couple years after it was very clear that valuations were just in, you know, fact, in crazy land. Irrational exuberance in December of '96, and it exactly. took us up into March of 2000. Right. So you can have animal spirits carry you way beyond what you would anticipate. And the sad part about that is that a lot of people are getting in now because they're afraid they're missing what everyone else is getting. And that's usually, to me, that's, you know, 34 years of doing this and dealing. I think that the difference that Dan and I have versus most money managers is we have clients that we sit across the table from that we're doing planning for. We understand their lifestyle and what this money needs to do for them. So um, it, it's – it's really important to understand the risk when you're dealing you're, – you actually have the responsibility of, of people's wealth in, in the palm of your hand. So, you know, that exuberance can lead you to do things emotionally that you probably should not be doing. Yeah, the obverse of this is I was, I was in private wealth management back in 99 and 2000. And when we were trying to dispense uh, being circumspect and being prudent and this whole growth at any price – um, Y2K bubble cannot last. I mean, valuations do matter. You can't just have a company valued at 80 times earnings or, you know, the, the whole Cisco's and Juniper of the world's. There's going to be a course correction. A mega capitalization stocks compared to small caps were at an all-time high in, in terms of premium. People didn't want to hear that. Like, you know, the crying wolf effect is 
every year you'd be proved wrong. Mm-hmm. And they'd have to talk to people who had just made you know, 100% in Qualcomm. Um, and I, I get the sense you're starting to see indications of that with the FANG stocks. What do they call it? Facebook, Apple, um, Amazon, Netflix, Netflix, Google, yep. Amazon, mm-hmm. right? F-A-A-N-G. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, these are like, the, you say this, the four horsemen of tech and the nifty 50 back in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet, to that point, and we are in the holiday party season right now, I have not been buttonholed by anybody to ask me about the stock market. They are talking about the, shall we say, <clears throat> a certain mm. coin. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. But no one asking me about stocks, no one asking me about, uh, oh, well, is it finally time to rotate into emerging markets? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. I, mean, I think that what you tend to find in markets like this, where basically everything is going up, you know, in the 90s, you had growth was dominating and value stocks, which if you were a diversified portfolio owner, weren't doing so well. So you know, there were there were ways to kind of take advantage of one particular part of the market versus another, uh, but really the last eight nine years have been, you know, maybe emerging markets aside, every market has done extremely well. So if you've been in the game, you've done well, and you know to to the original point of what happened, you know, have people forgotten about the declines of the past? Yes, they have. Um, and that's where we tend to get scary, and that's or scared, and that's when we tend to um, want cash to be defensive, because inevitably, as you said, whether it's valuations, whether it's politics, whether it's uh, lack of stimulus or decreasing stimulus, the markets are going to correct themselves at some point. It's inevitable. Oh, you're just old-fashioned corrections. <laughs> <laughs> now, talk, talk to me about the American Stock Exchange and your. You know, ticker machine. No, but I, you know, I want to make that point. You're talking about uh, th- this long stretch. If I go back to March 2009 and I have the uh, Luthold Group's indispensable uh, green book at hand, they just mailed this to me. Uh, you know, annual compounded returns from the market low. Uh, the Dow, 18.2 percent. The S and P as well. The Nasdaq, 22 percent. Uh, the Russell 2000 Small Cap Index, 19 percent. If we go down to REITs, I mean, real estate was kind of the epicenter of of that crisis, up 21 percent on average. Um, that is, you know, it's almost a decade we're talking about. And I know we were coming off of a lost decade period, but you have all of these people out there warning us about subdued returns, worry, you know, change your expectations, save more. Um, and yet there seems to be no great alternative for the person who wants to hedge. It's true. I mean, with, as we were talking about, with interest rates where they are, uh, I think people and where they're going, I think people are afraid of fixed income investments, understandably so. And cash is a good dog just kind of sitting there staring at you. But as we always say, there are times in the market, not all the time, but there are times in the markets where a lesser return or even a zero return is better than a negative return. And I think that if if the momentum of the last eight and a half years teaches us anything – and if the last 20 years of volatility teaches us anything, it's that when times are good or great, it's probably time to prepare for the flip side. But here's the problem. Couldn't you have made this same point 365 days ago? To uh, absolutely. And, and we, we and did. And they would we have were. missed out on a 20%. And you said this before, that these things can overshoot. Sure. And they probably will. And it must be vexingly hard, even with sober clients who've been through very sure. many client cycles to say, kind of, well, believe me, I did right by making you miss that 21% thing. And I might not be proved right this year or next year or in three years, but ultimately I will be right. Yeah, that I, seems to be coldly comfortable. It is. But I, I think what is helpful for us is that 
when we say to get out, be out of the market, you're not completely out of the market. You're locking in gains, and the more the markets go up, the more of those gains we're setting aside. So our clients, for example, still have 40, 50, 60 percent in the market. So do we want the market to keep going up? We do. I mean, people are participating. But we've got a lot of what we call opportunity cash, which is really just profits from the gains in those markets over the last so as six, opposed seven to reinvesting years. those dividends back into exactly. the product, you husband them and wait for an opportunity. They're not the dividends. We actually take we actually sell portions of those asset classes that have hit. Is that tax efficient? It is. It's all long term capital gain, and it's just remember it's bits and pieces. So it's it's gradual over time. So given the run that we've had, we have. In many cases, 30, 40 percent in what we call gain. You know, I remember sitting across from people in 2009 and people saying, I wish I had just sold some of my stock and spent it as opposed to just having lost it in the market. I mean, it's so it's you, a, so you're riding everything up, and then what do you do? It, you it ride it all the way back down. It's a cliche question if it boils down to fear versus greed. Is one, in your estimation, more powerful than the other? Does one eclipse the other? I, I know that in many times, um, the They're pain of fear e- is more pungent. Like I still remember the PTSD of of losing oh, yeah. <laughs> on Priceline at the turn of the century or where I felt like I was when my magazine was failing and the market was at a, you know, 15-year low in, in 2009. But Robin, they're both bad. They're, mm. they're both equally bad. To, to sell things when they're depressed, in our strategy, we're buying when things are depressed because we've got the opportunity cash to do that. To buy things when they're this overvalued, that's greedy. We're, we're selling to the greedy. We're, we're taking some profits off the table, not completely getting out of any market, but simply saying, this is really overvalued. Let's lock some in. One of the things that we say to prospective clients and existing clients is, what is more financially emotional to you, doubling your money or having it cut in half? And to everyone we've asked that question, to a T, everybody says, I do not want to have it cut in half. And that may be a, a representation of the types of clients that we work with. Uh, it may be uh, the phase of life that they're in. But I, I, I think that that seems to be a very common response. So I, what I always say to them is, okay, so what are you doing to protect against that? And I think there are two things that people traditionally do. Uh, They don't have all of their money in stocks. They diversify stocks, bonds, cash. Uh, The other thing I say to people is, do you think that the next eight or nine years will be like the last eight or nine years as good 18% annualized? And everybody's like, "Mm -mm, no way. Right. So, okay. So shouldn't you be invested differently today with the portion that is in stocks versus the portion that was in stocks eight and a half years ago? And everybody says, well, yeah, probably that makes sense. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Dalal Solomon and Dan Ludwin of Solomon Ludwin. Uh, This firm has been ranked in Barron's Top 1200 Wealth Advisors in the U.S. uh, for the longest time. It was for for 15 years running almost? 12 years. 13 years running. Uh, You, Dalal, you've been ranked in Barron's Top 100 Women Financial Advisors in the U.S. Um, You guys founded the firm in 2009, and I'm curious to get to the kind of the machine learning element of this, taking human emotion out of this. You've invested quite a bit in in software, should I call it artificial intelligence? 
Should we call it artificial intelligence? It seems intelligence? like a popular word these days. <laughs> there's um, a legend that you know, in your old, your old, your 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 shop occupies an old bank, and there's a bank vault in it. Yes. Uh, with 50 inch reinforced steel doors, and inside is that black box. <laughs> uh, so it's like Fort in a Knox. slightly different place, but yes. So, so we, tell we do that. tell me about it. Do you talk to it? Do you feed it? Is it like Hal from 2001? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite that sophisticated, but you know, I, I think one of the things that you learn about rules based disciplines is that you do need to continue to feed it because um, emotions uh, are what we're trying to move from, remove from the equations. Uh, but you, know, you, you go through different cycles of markets uh, where you have an eight-and-a-half-year run or you have a 10-year a drought like we did from 2000 to 2010 where you basically went point-to-point point running on a, on a treadmill, exhausted but, but net no gain. Um, you know, so I, I think that over the last eight and a half years, as we have been developing these strategies, we have learned, as I've always said, you know, we built a house, which was a, a, a rules-based strategy. And when we were done with it, we were so excited to build the next house because of the things that we learned from the first house. And right now we're actually on our fifth house. So it's the same premise. It's the same principle but you start to realize, well, why, why do I apply it to just a model of index funds? Why, why couldn't I apply it to individual stocks or to mutual funds? So it, it's those kinds of things where you, you're not necessarily changing the logic, but you're you're allowing yourself to apply it to a broader array of things. I imagine at Dalal, you're staying at the office after a huge week of travel and client inflows. And as you're shutting off the lights to go home late in the evening, the machine turns around and says... <laughs> Dalal, are you feeling too exuberant? <laughs> what is your temperature? I th- I think the markets are beyond exuberant. I I really have a hard time understanding what continues to drive this market up. You know, the the Trump bump, the so-called Trump bump. I mean, that news is old. It's been out there. The tax tax law changes. It's already been built into the market. Um, I find it really interesting that nobody's talking about debt and deficit and how we're going to tackle. Oh, you mean like bond vigilantes and old school <laughs> stuff? You're in the early 80s. Well, on that on that subject, yeah. everybody talks about this bond bull market and, and some on the show have accused it of being fetishism. I mean, this has been going on now since Paul Volcker was running the Fed and broke the back of inflation in the early 80s. We've asked guests before, is there even an institutional memory much less – um, a mom and pop, you know, Main Street memory of the fact that you can lose money in bonds. When you talk about clients being, you know, fifty or sixty percent in equities, the idea now is that you just can't lose money in bonds. They haven't lost money for the longest time, and there's nobody on the sell side or the buy side to tell them no. Things can in fact fall apart. It's so important to educate as part of our responsibilities to educate clients on what the risks are. And you're right; people don't really understand that uh, with the rise in interest rates. You could easily lose 10, 15, 20, 25 percent of the value of your bond portfolio. But gosh, we just have not had anything like that. There was a blip in 1994 where Wall Street had a rough year, but no one, no one, I mean, that's 23 years ago. No, and then they raised interest rates a quarter point this week and the long yields went down. Because I think the United States, and this gets into Wonkistan again with monetary policy, Mm -hmm. and as the reserve currency of choice and where people want to park their monies, I don't know if we are in control of our monetary destiny and self-determination. Whenever something falls apart, people want their money in treasuries, by and large, on the short end and on the long end. Um, 
And that's a good thing. I mean, you have people in the administration arguing that this is why we should inflate our debt, if anything else, and build roads like crazy. If they're going to give us money, you might as well spend it. And others are saying, no, there is a generational bill to pay. Um, you are going to see crowding out. You're going to see a, a tab that's smacked on your desk soon. The debt and deficit thing clearly is a storm cloud that is uh, of size that we've never seen before. I think the question is, when is it actually going to start to rain? And you know, good good news, bad news is. I mean, I don't think it's going to be something where there's this moment of reckoning. I think it could be something that takes a long time to deal with and a long time to um, to digest. Yeah, I think that you know what we forget about both in the U.S. and globally is the amount of stimulus that continues to happen monetarily. Um, you know, I think that we've forgotten about the quantitative easing that happened in three different chunks during the recovery to the tune of roughly $4.5 trillion, right? That's 12 so, you know, zeros. To unpack again for our listeners, in addition to taking yields down to next to nothing almost 10 years ago, it was December of 2008, mm -hmm. um, the Fed kind of conjured money out of thin air to buy mortgage-backed assets and effectively chase people into risk. Is that a fair? Yes. Well, I think, you know, I think there were a couple, couple points to it. One was to keep mortgage rates low, to keep home values uh, high, right? Because to me, home affordability is based on the value of the home and the interest rate that you pay. And, and candidly, it's more about the monthly payment. It determines home affordability. So keeping interest rates low keeps the home values up. I think it also steers people away from, you know, the traditional safe and stable fixed income environments, which is difficult for retirees because, you know, collecting four or 5% tax-free as they had in the past and now looking at one or 2% tax-free uh, isn't going to, you know, isn't going to pay the bills. Um, but again, I think that we forget that we are in the U.S. continuing to purchase $4.5 trillion of government bonds. We haven't stopped. We just haven't added to that bill. So for the last three and a half years, they continue, in my opinion, to stimulate at the same levels that they were three, four years ago. So there's a new Fed chair coming in. I mean, Janet Yellen was fortunate to not have a crisis on her watch. Many people out there saying that she should have been allowed to serve out the term and, and, and be rolled over. But but Powell is coming in, and the uh, the word on the street is that he's just going to see a continuation of easy does it and no rush to ratchet up rates. But then again, none of that gets into the conversation of unwinding the quantitative mm -hmm. easing, which is there is there a is there a wheel is the opposite of unwieldy wieldy mm -hmm. is there a neat way to do that? Well, you know, I, I you know if you look across the globe, there really hadn't been a situation like this in the past. This isn't something that you can go back to the the nineteen twenties or the nineteen seventies and say, okay, so how did we unwind this gigantic um, load of money that we've been buying bonds with? So I think that you know, while I give the Fed and and global uh, central banks a lot of credit for fighting through, for helping us fight through the craziness of that economic meltdown in 08, 09, I think that the dilemma that we fear is that they've kind of backed themselves into a stimulative corner, where um, anytime, at least this is the way it seems to have been, anytime the market drops, and I'm not talking about bond market, even the stock market, anytime that drops. There, there is a quantitative easing talk or, uh, you know, maybe we won't raise rates or maybe we'll just continue to buy the $4.5 trillion. Yeah, I mean, indeed, I think we were at Fed funds at about 4.5% before this financial mm -hmm. crisis. Uh, absolutely. We many, were in 4% on our money market. It's unbelievable. Many people, though, uh, have suggested that this is a brave new world. You don't want to get into new paradigm thinking too much, but there is a glut of global savings. Every bank has its pedal to the metal. I mean, you have negative interest rates in many you know, Scandinavian countries yes. and European countries and uh, whatever uh, 
beta or alpha or whatever it is you have in the United States, people are going to chase, whatever yield is there. And so we've seen the investment-grade markets completely, I mean, there were companies issuing 50-year debt, taking advantage of great terms. I think the University of Pennsylvania issued a 100-year bond. Mm -hmm. um, once you refinance that, once you exhaust every opportunity in junk, mm -hmm. you know, their pick toggle securities, preferred everything, mm -hmm. people jump to the equity side of the ledger. And we've seen... Uh, uh, you know, dividend-paying stocks, low vol was very mm -hmm. hot. There's a great Harvard Business School note on low volatility outperforming um, um, volatile stocks for the longest time, which is kind of, you know, you want to think of it that way. You're going to mm -hmm. think you're, you get a better risk premium. So right now what you have if you're the Federal Reserve is a world that's that's exceedingly dependent on monetary policy. People kind of knowing that something's around the horizon but getting tired of being warned about this every year, and that only breeds more complacency. Absolutely. Uh, and candidly, what, what, it, what it is doing is it's increasing the appetite for risk. Because I think when you see uh, continued stimulus, continued low interest rates, and continued uh, great returns in the markets, th that is a combustible uh, event to where people want to chase the things that have done well. Hmm. You know, I, uh, Dalal, I look at your bio here, and it's, it's always kind of blown me away that, you know, you started off, you were born in Honduras. You came to the United States. It, it, you were at Michigan State University. You got your degree in business, and you worked in a family store? I put myself through college by having a, a, my own store at Michigan East Lansing. And so take us back to your uh, baptism in the stock markets when you joined What the World Was Like. Um, oh, gosh. That was back in... Um 1982, mm. I joined a financial planning firm in Bethesda, Maryland, and really learned, got an unbelievable education from the uh, the 50, 60, 70-year-old uh, men there that I was the first woman they hired, and I was a novelty, and they were going to show me everything, and I was to just sit and listen and not speak, and... Um, it actually turned out to be a great education, and I learned everything from uh, investments to taxes to estate planning to insurance, and that was the basis of my initial interest now, in the market. Now, 1982, you mentioned, so that the mm. market's low generationally. Were... It was August of 82. Um, the S&P 500 has returned to compound 12.5% since August of 82. Nobody was interested in the markets back then. No. You could go to a bank. I remember going with my dad to uh, American Savings and Loan in Miami, and they'd give us toasters and yes. blenders. <laughs> and dad kneeled down. I remember I was in kindergarten. He's like, this is your passbook savings account. It yields 9%. He's going to take you to college. You know, in hindsight, if somebody could have said, dad, put him in an S&P 500 index fund. But back then, they didn't have those things. You know, you had to call a broker. Commissions were high. I'm struck by that time. I wanted to press you on the kind of the sheer democratization of investing right now. You can... You know, you guys deal in ETFs and index funds, and, and these these low-cost, very efficient, very liquid vehicles mm -hmm. are available to anyone. They are. They are. And we're, and I think that's a good thing. And I think that's uh, – uh, we incorporate those types of investments into our portfolios. It's good that they're low-cost. It's good that they're tax-efficient. It's good that they're diversified. You still have to answer the question, how much at any point in time should you actually have in the market? And how do you make those decisions? And how do you gradually change your allocation to give you the kind of risk parameters that you can live with and then will also let you accomplish the goals that you're trying to accomplish? 
I would also argue that I think the the indexing of the investment world, while it is a wonderful and necessary thing because I think that it exposes um, the good, the bad, and the ugly of investment management. I think it exposes uh, the real cost of a trade, which is round to zero now, uh, or at least going to be going close to zero. But one of the things that I would say to, to Dalal's point is – so the good news is in 2008, you owned the S&P 500 index fund, and it was fundamentally free, very small cost. The bad news is you were down 38%, mm. right? So while it's great to have no cost, we, we and that's why we've kind of deployed this strategy around those index funds to take advantage of deep diversification, low cost, tax efficiency, all those things. But again, to Dalal's point... We also believe that there are times when you need to uh, tap on the brakes of your car or really slow your car down depending on the traffic. Um, using those index funds is a great way, great vehicle uh, to allow you to do that in a very tax-efficient way. Um, the other thing I would add is, man, I'd love to see what those uh, 50, 60, 70-year-old men would think of you now. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. I do. You know, I, I think about this huge uh, flood into – Passive investing, mm. which has been the huge beneficiary of the 0809 crisis. I got to interview Jack Bogle. Mm. You know, this, you, you want to talk about dumb luck. I was on a train with him to DC on the Acela train on the market's generational low. Wow. And he turned around and said to me, You know, Robin, uh, I, I do his voice in a terrible <laughs> way. He said, I, 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 I don't move money around a lot. I, I let it generally do what it did, but I went all to bonds in 2000. And right now I'm, I'd be just amazed if people weren't investing in the markets. Uh, I, I just don't see, you know, either you throw in the towel and it's going to be a dark day and you'll never come out of it or you'll, you'll end up really great. And that coming from, you know, a hero in investing, someone who, um, kind of mentored me. Uh, I met him in college. Uh, you see what Vanguard has become. I mean, this unbelievable, uh, push and you must get it with clients that if you can't beat the market, just be the market. Right, yeah, absolutely. But right. you're saying that comes with complacency as well. Well, it's also easy to say that if you have hundreds of millions of dollars of net worth. Um, you know, I, I think when you deal with people like we do, like Delal said, sitting across the table from people, this is their hard-earned money. And as I always describe to people, I'm looking at the table here in front of us. That when you retire, it's kind of like you're at an all-you-can-eat buffet. You have all the food that you're going to have for the rest of your life sitting in front of you. And you do not want some robber to come up and steal half your food because then you feel like you need to start rationing for the rest of your life. And I think that that approach is, and having lived through these kinds of volatile times and the emotions associated with, with our clients uh, has led us to, to, again, be a little bit more uh, opportunistic, a little bit more defensive at various times. The other thing that I would add, sorry, to back up on the indexing thing, is that while I do believe that indexing is huge and will be a huge part of the business going forward, you know, I think that it could also contribute to increased volatility. And I honestly think that we're just seeing that, but on the upside of the volatility. Because I always say you could be, you know, at the intersection at a stoplight, pull up your phone uh, and sell all of your S&P 500 positions, right? Literally at a stoplight. And while that's great and convenient for people, that also moves 500 stocks all at once. 
And to think and to look back at the charts of the crash of 87 and see that it's such a tiny blip. Mm -hmm. yes. But you could clearly feel, go back and look at, you know, Financial News Network and Rue Kaiser and, uh, you know, Bill Griffith of CNBC back in the crash of 87 30 years ago. And program trading did a number on that mm -hmm. market. Of course, those volumes are a sliver of what we're seeing mm -hmm. today. If you think about high frequency trading, uh, index trading, products, you know, structured products linked to indices, you're right. It's so darn easy. And I don't think about commission anymore. There mm -hmm. isn't a transaction right. fee that's kind of getting in your way. Right, right. It's kind of in and out. Well, and I, I, I again, I honestly think that the the don't think about the commission thing is a good thing because I think that that does create trading for the right reasons. But I also think that it can create um, excessive trading, meaning I'm I'm able to react more emotionally uh, because there's really no cost barrier. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Dan Ludwin and Dalal Solomon, the co-founders of Solomon Ludwin. It's been around since 2009 when it started with $300 million in assets. It's now at a billion dollars in assets. It's very cognizant of risks and risks that we largely forgot about. I mean, you have to think about a company that was forged in the teeth of the Great Recession and financial crisis. I mean, that's inception. I got, I got together with my high school economics teacher, Dalal, a couple years ago. He visited us here in, in Central Virginia, and I asked him the, the big meaning of life question we've had in this Great Recession was like, what is normal? Can you give me a year where things were normal, where something wasn't out of whack, where interest rate policy wasn't artificially stimulative, where you didn't have, um, you know, an enormous tax cut or uh, uh, some other distortion coming in or a crisis overseas or a bubble? And he just turned it around in a beautiful way. And he said, uh, normal is what the world was like when you graduated from college was when you had to get an apartment on your own, when you mm. had to open your first 401k. That's your inception of normal. Mm. So for me, my normalcy is is graduating into the 1998 LTCM crisis and Boris Yeltsin teetering and mm. um, you know Russia failing and, and um, rolling emerging market crises, but then that being swept under the rug by the Greenspan Federal Reserve. And we had this unbelievable rush into stocks in 1999 and 2000. And um, who was it? Carmela Soprano on The Sopranos was talking about investing. <laughs> and Maria Bartiromo was on The Late Show. So, you know, you talk about that zeitgeist. And I always try to ask this as a kind of a Rorschach question to people. When was it normal? What, what do you think is normalcy? Can you look back at a year in your investing career? And I think, you know, go back to unpack what you told us earlier. I saw an article on you. It says, you started your first business in college, a consignment shop for jewelry and artwork, and paid your way through Michigan State, running the business, working as a waitress, and painting college dorm rooms in the summer. You finally earned your Bachelor of Science degree. Um, you well, were I did do it in four years. Yeah. It didn't take me longer than that. <laughs> but it wasn't, you know, you're not a product no. of privilege. No. This wasn't preordained. No, you no, weren't no. like, a, you know, a sell-side goddess who descended from the mountains, like you had to learn. No, but I think it's an interesting question that you ask about normal. It's what really what's there. There is no normal. The The markets are unpredictable. They've always been un, unpredictable. The, the markets are a pendulum. They swing too much one way, then they swing too much another way. I think this is all in some ways n normal. And in 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 every way, it's it's as it always has been. I don't think there's this, a paradigm shift. I don't think there are some things that we've never experienced before, negative interest rates that we've never experienced before, the amount of debt. But all in all, markets are, it's supply and demand, but 
that's what it all boils down to. And you have all these all these people, you know, uh, Trump says uh, fake news. This is like fake market stuff to me. It's um, it the pendulum swung too much one way in 2008, 2007, 2008, and it's swinging too much the other way now. And I think we're we're going to have some kind of correction. The markets, I mean, really, the markets don't just go straight up. Do they, Robin? No, but then you have certain markets, like we talked about the bond market, 35 years. By then, you know, the old shibboleths are kind of thrown out, the old truisms and aphorisms. and, and But then it reminds me of, you know, when I was investing in internet stocks and everything, people are like, value kit, you know, right. small cap, <laughs> emerging markets will have the day again. I was like... Right. And I worry about but institutional But bond markets memory. and real estate markets have much, much longer life cycles usually than the equity markets. Mm. So, I mean, it has been an extremely long bond market. It's There's some ex, um, circumstances that were extreme that have created the the longevity of that market. But um, I don't really think you can compare the, the life cycles of real estate and bond markets to equity markets. Mm. Let me ask you in the few minutes we have left that, you know, you want to wonk out on, you know, non-correlating assets. Is there any way other than cash or bonds to kind of zig while everything else is zagging? I mean, I've heard people make the case about emerging markets, which don't look now. They've had a lost decade. I mean, they've had a great year, up 33%. Um, after people said that this asset class is broken and developed markets, people talk about frontier markets. We've had this whole stretch. It's, it seems like old history now where commodities super run, mm -hmm. where you were supposed to hedge with commodities. And, and I mean, look how bad advice that was. The Bloomberg Commodity Index has returned a negative 2.2% annualized since the March 2009 low. Um, you know, crude oil has returned 3% a year. I mean, that's that's just a fraction of what markets return. Um it seems in a perfect kind of business school finance case, you want to get as many assets as you can as low as possible cost, things that zig when everything else is zagging. And in the end, you'll come out in the wash at a nice uh, real return every year. Is that still possible today? Uh, probably less possible today than it has been historically. Um, but that's still the belief, right? Um yeah, I, I think the challenge of the, the the zigzag is is you say the stocks are the zig. What, what so what's the zag? Well, I think historically you could say it's gold. You could say it's commodities. You could say it's REITs. Um, you could say it's treasuries. Um, well, gold trades like a stock now, right? Because it it's ETF'd. So the volatility of gold, the the rise and fall of gold, is I would argue speculative, just like a stock. Uh, interest rates, we've talked about how low those are and probably the low slog of, of, of transition to more normal levels, whatever normal means in terms of interest rates. Um, commodities you just mentioned, I think that's what – when you, again, when you get back down to it, I think that's one of the reasons why the market keeps going up is because there's nowhere else to hide. And our fear is, is that once there is another place to hide, a zag, then you're going to see – People run to that to get back to their base, diversified, lots of different colors in the pie chart. And, you know, I'm not going to bring you in on the Ides of December and not ask for predictions for the following year. I mean, throw out all the boilerplate disclaimers you'd like, but I really want to hold your hand to the fire and, and tell us what we should at least be more mindful of going into 2018. Yeah, so we do this internally every year. Mm -hmm. And um, 
Uh, That's I, why we have a patented software program where emotions are not involved. You're blaming the machine. <laughs> yeah. No, I no, the machine, this machine. Is, the machine is right. The machine. The you know, I gave good. you a bottle of rum. Maybe I should bring the machine <laughs> something. What go. does the machine want? Bitcoin? No, no, no. <laughs> Ethereum? No, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm not going to put a number on it because, you know, I think one of the things that we've realized is, you know, the joke is my crystal ball. I have a crystal ball, but it's in the shop. Nobody knows. And I think that's the point of why we've built what we've built. But it's hard not to look at the journey that we've had uh, over the last eight, nine years, arguably some of the reasons why the journey has occurred, the outside influence uh, around the markets. It's not just been earnings driven. It's not just been balance sheet driven. It's been uh, governmentally driven through stimulus, et cetera. Um, now you could argue it's it's you know, tax cut driven. I mean, there's always a reason. Uh, but at the end of the day, I would argue that 2018, 2019 – um, is going to bring in some volatility. I think that's the word that has been really missing mm -hmm. uh, over the last three, four years. And I think that, you know, I'm fearful that when people do see a three, four, five percent drop and they start to buy and then they see it drop a little bit more, that that's where they may start to remember. Uh, Dan you know, Lundman, what are you talking about a 3 4 5% drop? That's not possible. I, it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem I like it. I keep thinking of Warren Buffett. And, you know, things shouldn't boil down to simple sayings, but I'm greedy when other people are fearful yes. and fearful. Yes. I've been wanting to be greedy for the longest time, darn it. You know, I want to take some gains off the table, yeah. put it in cash, and even if I accept nothing in the, in the meantime, it's just markets keep running away from me and I can't seem to time it. And... Cash is yielding so little and I have fixed income demands that in the end, I'm just kind of like a little paralyzed in the headlights and just leave it alone. Let it do what it's doing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I, again, I don't Until think we're I saying... get my heart broken, you know. Well, you know, it's it depends on what phase of life you're in. If you're still working, you're still saving, you're still investing versus if you're retired and you're not you're not bringing anything in the the, the assets have to produce for you. It's a different – so I think it's I, – I just don't think you can make generalizations. I think it's very specific to where, what phase of life you're in and what these assets really need to do for you. And do you know what I think in the end what would be a truly non-correlating – And you're such a young man, Robin. I wish. Don't you see my – don't you see my – Dignified gray. At least you have some. Oh, don't say that. You know what's actually a non-correlating asset to my index stock portfolio? What's that? My opening a Persian food truck. <laughs> <laughs> Those cash flows. <laughs> I'll be your first customer. Dan Ludwin, Dalal Solomon, I cannot thank you enough. Co-founders of Solomon Ludwin, you must read their stuff. I mean, there are a handful of interviews out there in Forbes and Barron's. I will post them on the website. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for thank coming you. out here just thank you, short of Christmas. I hope you have a great Christmas. Happy holiday. High happy, happy Hanukkah. Thank you. you. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Find us and love us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. On Twitter, we are at FullDRadio. On Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Hey, we are investment grade, high vol, low yield, portable alpha, value at a growth price. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Next week.